0: You get the video that I sent you of Kaylee's ridiculous charcuterie board. Wait, I actually don't think I
1: did. Well, no, I'm <gasps> sure, let me let me phrase that. I'm 100% sure you sent me this. I'm also 97% sure <laughs> that I just missed it.
0: It's in our group chat for whenever you're ready. Kaylee, who considers charcuterie boards a hobby, which is my favorite <laughs> thing. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> ah! It has a pull-out drawer inside of it with all the little utensils for a cheese board. You guys, well, I don't know. Maybe we'll share a picture
1: of this. This is the most beautiful charcuterie board. I mean, there, what is that? Is that mozzarella with
0: uh, basil folded into it? Okay, yes. She did a charcuterie board for everyone, and then she did a little side one for me that was dairy and gluten-free.
1: Did you know I actually knew that was happening because she was texting me on the side trying to figure out what cheeses were your favorites (laughs) before you couldn't have cheese anymore because she knew about this vegan cheese shop. Mm. So we were talking about like, okay, well, she would probably like this, but this kind of thing with, well, you got to get this texture to match with this texture. And that was fun.
0: I felt so loved. I have so much fake cheese now and it tastes like cheese. Honestly, oh, this good. cheese shop really is spectacular. The texture is slightly weird, but the mm. cheese actually tastes right, and that is so rare. Yeah. And we did a Hocus Pocus double feature with friends. How's the new Hocus Pocus?
1: Mm. Oh, mm. Not as fun as the original?
0: Okay. I'm glad we did it as a double feature. We had a friend there who hadn't seen it before, so we put a big lipstick V on his forehead. <laughs> Adorable. Okay. Anyone, I'm not going to spoil what happens, but I am going to comment on the film. So if you don't want to hear that at all before you watch it, just skip like a minute or two. Tracy, you have to deal with this because- Always. <laughs> my problem with it is mm-hmm. that Hocus Pocus 1, campy. It's awesome. They, they committed to the story they were telling and it is campy. Mm-hmm. Hocus Pocus 2- Was fan service at the expense of everything else. Okay. So they were commenting on the jokes that they were making while they were making it, which goes along with my larger theme right now of like, if you virtue signal in your work, in your writing, you are cheating the audience out of the opportunity to actually consume what you are making.
1: Hmm. That kind of is a good tie-in to, even though I haven't seen it yet, and I might never, Don't Worry Darling, that's a lot of people's complaint about that movie. Well, one of kind of many.
0: Yeah, I I haven't seen it, but I have also heard that. I just, I think about this a lot because of the nature of our work, because Mm -hmm. we write and then we read our writing in our own voices. And so I think it is very difficult for people to understand us as writers who write other perspectives that are different from our own Mm -hmm. which we do very often (laughs) very often um and i think people sometimes can forget that uh by the nature of our medium Mm -hmm. of course but the sanderson sisters are villains they're great because they're great villains And when you're trying to comment on your own understanding of villainy and separate yourself, like, I'm not endorsing their badness while you're making them bad, you're cheating the villain. Just make a bad villain. Just make a bad. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I'm still going to watch it, but. You should. I think 100% you should. It also, this film is so obviously coming on the back end of that, you know, Women's March led to a lot of witch content being created, books, Mm -hmm. films, and we're in that publication cycle of it existing in the world now. This movie is so clearly influenced by everyone's fascination with witches and witches kind of being good. Mm -hmm. And it is also so clearly influenced by TikTok. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So, everyone, if you skipped, welcome back. (laughs) Hi. Hi. I'm Rowan Hall. Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology,
1: and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support the show, check out our website, willingandfable.com, where we have some merch recommendations and you can see our faces learn about the rest of the team that makes the show possible lots of fun information for you over there
0: and a giant thank you to our patrons you allow us to pay the people who work with willing and fable we're not fancy but it is important to us that artists are paid I think that it's worth being transparent kind of about how this works. Mm -hmm. Tracy and I do not collect a salary from this podcast. All of the money that we make goes right back into collaborating with exceptional artists and bringing you great stories. So if you like what we do, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willing and fable. We appreciate you joining us. Or you can
1: sit in the basement of an old decrepit building. With a whiteboard in front of you and as much red string as you can carry and solve a mystery of your own. Mm -mm. But no matter what, we're happy to have you here today. I have a ton of red string in my house. I have three baskets of yarn behind me, so. Oh
0: yes, mine is yarn
1: also. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, always. (laughs) If it's not yarn, it's embroidery floss. Because I hyperfixate on hobbies every couple months.
0: Have you... This is the worst question I've ever Mm -hmm. asked on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Have you ever tried to embroider with dental floss? Because I need to know, mostly because of the Floss Floss name.
1: I haven't, but I I think it would be perfectly doable.
0: Hey, embroiderers, (laughs) (laughs) write in. Tell us, answer the important questions I have about your craft. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can also support the show by, as we say, supporting the people who support us. Normally, we ask if you're thinking about your holiday shopping right now, but you know what? Forget everyone else. Be the villain Mm -hmm. that this year promised you could be. Think about yourself. Do you want an advent calendar for this Christmas? If so, head over to Greenleaf Geek for the adventure calendars, which are TTRPG-themed advent calendars. Last year, they sold out, so we
1: really can't emphasize enough that you need to head over there as soon as possible so that you can get your adventure calendar and open up a tiny little present every single day.
0: Tracy and I are getting two, and we will not be re-gifting them. No, nor revealing what's in them. (laughs) No, uh, that that was part of the deal, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You guys can learn as we learn at Christmas, but not Mm -hmm. before. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So... For yourself, we highly advocate, of course, for another TTRPG lover in your life. Shop advent calendars at Greenleaf Geek. Use our special code for this special event. It's FableAdvent. That's F-A-B-L-E-A-D-V-E-N-T. No spaces to get $5 off your order. And when you shop the rest of the store, use the code Fable.
1: That's F-A-B-L-E for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply.
0: Like last week, before we go into today's episode, a quick content warning. The episode will include much discussion of death, drowning, and suicide, and some of the people in this true and morbid history are quite young. Listener discretion is, as always, advised. So, this is part two of our little mini-series on the (laughs) unknown woman of the Seine. If you haven't listened to part one, back up. Rejoin us when you're finished. Sorry, it's it's a requirement, actually. Yeah.
1: It's like in college, you need to take the 101 before you take the 102. Do yourself a favor. Go listen to the 101, aka episode 93.
0: But it's going to be like the 101 class where like the teacher is really cool and they know it's a required 101 class, so not everybody is majoring in this. Mm-hmm. I like to think that I'm aware that not everybody is majoring in death uh, in life.
1: I thought you were going to go with history and mythology, so when you said not everyone's majoring in death, it did throw me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I think everyone who listens to our podcast has chosen for their life to at least minor in history and mythology. Like, this is at least a minor interest for them. I just thrust death upon us for the Halloween season. It's spooky season. It's time to talk about a little bit of death. So... A quick recap, if you, like me, have the memory of a a hamster. (laughs) Mm,
1: Or me, like a a little goldfish.
0: (laughs) One day, quite like many days before and like many days after, an unknown woman was pulled from the Seine and brought to the Paris Morgue for display. She was particularly beautiful, and this garnered the attention of quite the crowd, She was so beautiful, in fact, that the physician who performed her autopsy, or maybe a medical assistant, or perhaps an attendant of the mortuary. Anyway, a man with some power was Mm -hmm. so taken with her delicate, serene smile that he immediately ordered a plaster cast to be made of her face. Not one of the thousands of people who came to see her body could identify the beautiful girl, and she was buried in a pauper's grave. Meanwhile, the casting of her face would make its way out of the mortuary and go on to become such a coveted object that it would eventually become a mass-produced household decoration for bohemians across Europe.
1: The other big thing that you... Mentioned at the top of last week's episode mm. that we haven't explained yet is you say this is the most kissed woman in the world, and that you and me and most of our listeners either have or know someone who has kissed her.
0: I love it when you listen to me and then show me how much you care by paying attention <laughs> to the thing. Thank you so much. That is my love of language. Course. Of course.
1: That couldn't have been a more intriguing way to start the episode. Of course I remember it.
0: So, yes, like last week, our gal, the unknown woman of the sun, the drowned Mona Lisa, is the Mm -hmm. most kissed woman in the world. So, we learned about how death masks were made, and now I want to jump forward to a time that this technique actually did some good for the world. I love that. Decades down the line from when one teenaged girl's body was pulled from the Seine, in the wake of World War I, one sculptor used the techniques of the life casts and death masks to make prosthetics for soldiers whose faces were disfigured in battle. Anna Coleman Ladd was an American sculptor who moved to France during World War I when her husband took a position with the Red Cross. After learning about the injured men and corresponding with Frances Derwent Wood, who founded the Tin Noses shop in London, she, with the help of the Red Cross, created the studio for portrait masks in Paris. I'm just going to call it out. I'm so excited about her because she's a woman in history doing some really cool things, and I just love this tie-in of... A woman, a young girl really, being so famous for her death mask. Meanwhile, another woman years down the line learns about death masks and then makes something really beautiful with that technique. And to, to
1: change these people's lives, if they were horribly disfigured in war, to give them a face they can feel as their own again,
0: that's no small thing. Yeah, she would actually reference a soldier's pre-war pictures to make the prosthetics as accurate as she could to their face before they were injured in battle. She would create a life cast and then mold galvanized copper, the thickness of a paperback book cover, into a prosthetic. Because this was designed to cover only the affected area, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of times they would make kind of mask things, but they would cover the soldier's entire face. Hmm. So hers, because they were only partial, they'd often be held in place with spectacles. Ooh. And they allowed the patient more freedom than a full face covering. They were painted, and when necessary, real hair was added to the prosthetic. These works of art these works of art Mm -hmm. changed the lives of so many of her clients allowing them to get jobs and even rejoin their families many of the veterans she helped had previously resigned themselves to hiding away in a veteran's home rather than going back and seeing their loved ones which is so heartbreaking it's so heartbreaking to feel that
1: the the body that you survived in that carried you through something that traumatic makes you unworthy of being loved by those around you because it isn't what it once was. And I, I, it, it is such a tragic feeling and it, it just is the way that our human brains operate. But the fact that she could give them back a sense of normalcy is incredible.
0: Yeah. It's, it's kind of magical. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. Uh t- Fearing your own body or thinking other people will fear it is really hard. Uh, and what she did, I think now in a world where we make prosthetics all the time e- for just entertainment purposes, mm-hmm. it can it, it can feel hard to really internalize how much that meant. Mm-hmm. There's actual silent movie footage of Lad and a soldier with a prosthetic she created for his jaw. It is. Miraculous to see a footage of this. The man is so enthusiastic. And when Mm. they put the prosthetic on, I think a lot of this is helped by how grainy the film is, but it just like disappears into his face. Oh, that's amazing. You're like, okay, amazing, wild. The studio was only open for one year. Mm. During that time, Lad and her four assistants used their artistic skill to craft. 185 masks for injured World War I soldiers.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. That's so many. Yeah. and You probably don't have the answer for this, but why only open for one year?
0: I believe, I, can't, I don't know for a fact, um, mm-hmm. but I believe that they lost funding. I think maybe mm-hmm. the Red Cross stopped being involved in their work and then they couldn't afford to keep it up.
1: Makes sense. I'm sure these are incredibly expensive to make. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? The time and labor alone, let alone the costs.
0: And presumably, a lot of these soldiers weren't particularly wealthy. Oh, no. So I, I wonder if the payment for them was supplemented by something. But 185 is not nothing. Not nothing at all. That's incredible for one year. So, a little bit of fun, hopeful goodness. Let us circle back to. L'Inconnu de la Seine. Elaine Sciolino for the New York Times writes L'Inconnu is kept alive these days in an out of the way, family run workshop in the southern Paris suburb of Arcueil. Founded in 1871, the workshop L'Atelier Lorenzi creates handmade, perfectly molded plaster copies of figurines, busts, statues, and masks the way it has for four generations but it is best known for l'inconnu. In a box on the second floor of the artiller is its most precious possession, a 19th century chestnut-brown plaster mold of a death mask that is said to be that of l'inconnu. You ask me if my great-grandfather made the mold himself, and I don't know, said Laurent Lorenzi Faustier, who runs the family business. You ask me how the morgue organized the casting of the mold, and I don't know, what I do know is that we have a mold from that period of time. I am so excited <laughs> about this business. And I wanted to transition from this cool World War I story right into people who have been making this death mask from a period mold for generations.
1: This is the same mold as the Unknown Woman of the sand. It's just... If it's the original or a copy from the same time period is the question mark.
0: Yes. Got it. That is cool. We have no way of knowing if it's, quote unquote, the original, but because it was so wildly mass produced, Mm -hmm. the original was then taken and they made molds of it. So this mold is from the time that she was pulled out of the water as a victim. Wow. Yes. And, oh, quick sidebar. I'm so sorry to anyone who speaks French. Just... Full stop. We (laughs) always try to do our best, but we never promise
1: any results.
0: No, but effort.
1: (laughs) Always effort. Sometimes, perhaps too much, but, you know, we got a lot of heart.
0: I'm going to try so much. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) They still sell a few death masks of l'inconnu. Each year, priced at 98 euros. It's usually writers who buy the casts, they explain.
1: (laughs) You, a writer who's obsessed with the story and would absolutely have a mask.
0: Here's the thing. Sometimes you just have to accept that nothing about you is original. (laughs) And just lean into the stereotype. Yeah, I
1: mean, stereotypes translate into tropes, and tropes are great. They exist for a reason.
0: The thing that has allowed me to lean into the utterly preposterous existence that I now live Mm -hmm. is it comes from a place of love. Mm -hmm. I genuinely love words and knowledge and death masks. So I and the 500 other copies of me across the world are just going (laughs) to do it.
1: As you should.
0: Chase your bliss, okay? In in
1: this day and age, just... Find the thing that brings you joy that doesn't hurt others.
0: Yeah, cotton candy-flavored Victorian hard candies and death masks, guys. (laughs) God, that does sum us up. That's sad.
1: I just get the old lady candy and you get the cool mask.
0: It's like instead of sugar and spice, it's like sugar and death.
1: (laughs) We've always said it. We've always said it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here first, ladies and Mm -hmm. gentlemen. (laughs) Sugar and death. (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, actually, it could be sugar and Aquatofana. Like, put a little a spoonful of sugar helps the Aquatofana go down.
1: Oh my god, I'm imagining the coolest like 20s JC Linedecker style ad for Aquatofana. That's got a spoonful of sugar helps the Aquatofana go down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. This is how it is. <laughs> Oh, yeah. They know by now. (laughs) (laughs) In the Guardian article, Ophelia of the Seine. Okay, real quick.
1: I'm sorry to cut you off. We've got Ophelia of the Seine, Mona Lisa of the Seine, unknown woman of the Seine. Drowned
0: Mona Lisa, actually, Tracy. Oh, okay.
1: Sorry, sorry. Drowned Mona Lisa, Ophelia of the Seine,
0: unknown woman of the Seine, l'incognue. L'incognue de la Seine, which is the French for the drowned woman of the Seine. And there's also the beautiful drowned.
1: Okay. A lot of cool nicknames never gave her a real name, huh? No. Yeah. Not yet. It's just like, how are you going to – it's – she's got so many nicknames they use interchangeably. It's just very inconsistent.
0: I need to say it, though. If I were a dead body in the Paris morgue and they were like, okay, here's your options. Corpse, you can either be the French equivalent of Jane Doe or you can be l'inconnu de la Seine like, yes, thank you. I will take that
1: one. Obviously. Yeah. I'd like to be the mystery, please. (laughs) I would like to be the mystery, please. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Sorry. In the Guardian article, Ophelia of the Sun. In the Guardian article,
0: Ophelia of the Sun. Thank you, Tracy. Clara Forestier, a descendant of the original Lorenzi, said, quote, this mask crops up everywhere. 20 years ago, I was teaching drawing to students in a French beauty school. I walked into a classroom and saw there were 25 lacquered new faces hanging from the ceiling. They used them to practice makeup on or facial massage. Okay. It's so good. It's so- So
1: from, uh, these were not made from this one store, right? It's that-
0: No, no. They were just mass produced. Because they're just so widely mass produced, she could walk in and be like, oh, there she is, that woman whose mold wow. I have back mm-hmm. in my family shop. Mm-hmm makeup practice on this mask is so good if you wrote it they would not believe you
1: yeah it's true it's true it is (laughs) it's one of those things you don't think about the face of those kind of either mannequin heads or you know you just assume some artist made the original by carving it and then they did the whole make a mold make a slab, all that stuff and to find out that it was from the corpse of a young woman kind of shocking but like in a in a sugar and death morbid way
0: sugar and death it reminds me of i read stiff by mary roach great book it talks about death and kind of culture now but she talked to medical students who were mm-hmm. you know dealing with cadavers and how there is this element of humor you have to have To kind of almost protect yourself, but how that humor is never at the expense of the person who kindly donated their body for your use. Mm -hmm. And how they thank all of the bodies when they bury them and they talk to them and just this kind of weird culture that is born around that. And I just think that's so interesting. And that's not necessarily what's happening in this beauty school, but it is – An extension of this wild death practice making its way into just practicality? Mm Mm-hmm. And I wonder if they knew? She's become such a symbol, but who is she a symbol to outside of these sugar and death people? (laughs) Right. Otherwise, otherwise she's just this generic face. To comfort, I think, some of our listeners, and we've discussed this a bit, but here's an expert opinion – Forestier says of the story behind the girl's death Look at her full, rounded cheeks, her smooth skin. There is simply no way the cast could have been taken from a corpse. And this is certainly not a drowned woman fished from the water. It would be impossible to take such a perfect face from a dead woman. Some casts taken from living faces are so clear, so detailed, that when you look at the eyelids, You can just see the eyeball's movement underneath. That's the case with Ling kon Yu.
1: So that goes to support the theory you mentioned last week that she's not a drowned woman from the river at all, but a potentially living young woman who had a mold made of her, a life mask made of her face.
0: Yeah, a model, a plaster company owner's daughter, could be any number of things. The idea of seeing the eyeball movement underneath someone's eyelids in a life mask is just like, mm, does it get better Mm -hmm. than these details, my friends? (laughs) That's like when you see
1: these insanely amazing marble statues that have details down to the little veins.
0: Yes. And actually, it was that detail that in some ways inspired my piece from last week where this young man is saying, you know, don't realize that you're dead, don't wake up, because mm-hmm. as long as your eyes are closed and you don't know, then you can keep being alive. Like this idea that maybe her eyes were still tracking underneath. Mm-hmm. So I have a story for you this week. A quick content warning. This story contains themes of body horror and also self-harm. I once knew a man with no face. I will tell you about him now. On the left bank of the Seine, there was a man renowned for creating the most lifelike death masks. Some said it was a custom mix of plaster handed down through generations. Or that he had his linens custom woven and cut by a seamstress across the city who'd lost her hand in a tragic accident. It all sounded as unlikely as it was, though his plaster recipe was very particular. He took me on to keep the books. That's the thing about artists... They're too busy working to do any of the work necessary to keep working. The man once told me he liked me because I had tough hands. Rare for someone who pushes paper to have strong hands, he said. He was right. My hands have lost something from wringing them now, I think. He paid me well. Too well for the work, easy as it was. During my time, he cast dozens of death masks He had an assistant that he called in every once in a while, but he never let the boy touch a single mask or face. The boy spoke to customers when the man was too sullen, or he mixed plaster and grease, cut linen—see, no one-handed weaver woman here— and learned the craft from as far away as the man could convince him to go in the small studio. In my professional opinion, he never charged enough for his work— It was impeccable. He captured every last wrinkle and hair, each quirk of the human condition. It didn't matter if a body arrived locked in an expression of horror. By the time his work was done, each mask looked as serene as if their very own mother had escorted them off to their final sleep. I often imagined he coaxed them into rest while he worked, perhaps singing a song or whispering soft words into their ears. When I first began working with the artist, I would stand on the opposite side of the door, listening to the sounds of his puttering at the bodies. He did not talk much, even to the living. But when the corpses would leave after casting, packed up and carted off to burial, he would say, rest in peace, as frankly as I would say, good morning. The man was as morbid as you might expect from someone who works with the dead. I learned later that his disposition was in great contrast to the rest of the cast of characters who cared for the corpses. The doctors, the delivery men, even those old widowers now delivering their lost love, had more humor than he ever did. The man looked pained every waking moment of his life, as if each blink were a silent and agonizing cry. Not the moment of shut-eyed repose, oh no, being forced to look upon the living world again. Second after second was the trouble. One night, thinking I would have a little joke, I said, rest in peace, when I departed for the evening. I cast him a wave and turned around, my face already breaking out in an impish grin. I was acquiring the dark humor of the death workers. He said nothing, only nodded. But I saw a twisting of his brow, the pursing of his lips, as if he were flinching away from a sharp smack. I did not try to joke with the man again. I quite liked this studio, I'll tell you. I don't say that often because it's not something one ought to say now, but it was magnificent. There were so many faces hung upon the walls. At all levels, from floor to ceiling, with each client he worked, the artist always cast one mask for himself to keep. That was part of his rate, built into the contract I wrote. So the studio was full and ever-filling of faces, eyes closed in languor. He had the mask of Beethoven. I remember, far wall up to the right. The mask of Napoleon, shattered and dusted into a corner. I believe that was on purpose. The mask of the drowned Mona Lisa. Anyway, the night he lost his face. Didn't lose it. Well, anyway. I was heading back to the studio late. He didn't care much when I worked, as long as I got everything done. I'd taken the afternoon off to escort my Madeleine to coffee so I came back that night after dark. The studio light was on, so I called when I came in and sat. Hello, sir, I'll just be finishing up some filing for the night. He did not answer me, which was not uncommon, so I went right to work. Sorting the papers hardly took me a moment. I stood to go, thinking I would pop into the studio for a quick farewell, perhaps offer to boil him some tea before making my way home. He was not in the main room. The lamp was lit, but he was nowhere to be found. A body lay in the chair. A dentist's chair, wouldn't you know. Holds a corpse perfectly. The body of a man was in the chair, face encased and drying. It was an uneasy sight. I never did get accustomed to that. I always felt the urge to save them from suffocation, and was then horrified to touch a person so cold and sour. I made my way in, ducking underneath the fresh herbs that hung from the ceiling to keep the smell at bay. A miasma, he would say, superstitiously. I was thinking he might be in the little shed, cutting the excess off a few of the recently cured masks while he waited for the gentleman in the chair to dry. It was winter, after the Christmas holiday, and we were nearly backed up with bodies. People love to make it through Christmas and pass before New Year's. When I stepped further into the room... I could see him, very suddenly, in the dark corner. He was standing, somewhat hunched and fiddling with a tool. "'Sir,' he turned to me then, a wide white moon in the flickering lamplight. The man was wearing a death mask over his own face, hooked upon his ear the way one might wear a pair of spectacles, rough twine tangled in his hair. "'Sir,' I said again, Something black was oozing from beneath the plaster, sliding down his neck into his shirt collar. Are you quite all right? He did not answer me, and stood so still. But I was growing increasingly alarmed and rushed forward into the darkness. Seeing clearly now that his shirt was soaked with blood. I grasped around the dark workbench for a rag, anything to help him, thinking at the time he must have put on the mask to stop the flow of blood from some injury. I was a fool. I reached up to his neck with the cloth I'd procured and just as soon dropped it to the floor. What I had thought was the smooth silk of a handkerchief was the smooth skin of a person. A person I knew well. Where it lay in a damp mass on the floor between us, I could see where shaving nicks and stubble met the clear cut of a sculptor's hand. Around in a perfect circle, ragged only where anatomy demanded, the eyes were neat holes, I remember. I gasped, perhaps shouted, and stepped back, hearing the familiar shattering of a mask crunching beneath my foot. All around me there were masks sitting like bowls on every surface, each tied with twine and imprinted with the inkblot stain of blood, impressed like some savage glue. Just as quickly as I stepped back, I felt myself lurch forward. Even still, despite all evidence to the contrary, I could not imagine a man harming himself in this way, and at the sight of so much blood felt compelled to save him from an unseen enemy. I grabbed at the mask on the man's face before he could stop me. His hands were slow and shaking, though he was sturdy on his feet. It came off with a soft suck. Holding the death mask in my hand, I looked upon him. The artist standing before me looked so much more like a cadaver than any corpse in the studio ever had. He blinked through the blood running into his eyes like a man coming up from sleep. I could see tears streaming. They must have stung his raw flesh. No, nothing so subtle as tears could harm him now. There were white plaster flecks pressed into his open wound, and despite my terror, I wanted so badly to remove them for him. I knew such a mess of a mask would be a travesty to the artist. Plaster flecks like that were the domain of the studio. He always brushed everything so cleanly before sending it home with the dead's loved one. His lips, still whole, though wreathed with viscera, were moving in rapid and quiet speech. I leaned forward through my animal urge to run away. He didn't seem to notice me, only stared out into the studio blankly. He blinked so infrequently, I could not say now if he even had eyelids any longer. I want rest. I want peace. I want rest. I want peace. I want rest. I want peace, he intoned. Then... Slowly and gently, without moving his throbbing face, the man took the mask from my hands. He brought it back up and tied it on, just as simply as if he'd placed a hat on his head. I could not hear if he kept speaking. I waited for a long time, frozen like a deer under a hunter's gaze. This was the first chance I had to see the mask he wore with hundreds to choose from, I will admit I was curious. It was too small for his head. I knew it well, for she captured so much attention. I and the assistant fought with him for days when he took it from the front room and tucked it away in the back, where now we stood. "'It attracts good business!' I had shouted. "'They'll ask you to cast it if they know you have one. "'L'inconnu de la Seine, "'Let us advertise to the artists. "'Someone who comes in for their grandmother "'might like to hang her face as well, "'liven up all this aged death with something beautiful.' "'The man only looked at me, "'letting me bluster while he tenderly stroked "'the plaster face in his hand. "'When he turned away from me, "'I thought he said, "'Peace. "'They never give you a moment's peace.' At the time, I thought he was begging for peace for himself. From my frustration, perhaps he was. Standing before me in the dark studio, blood soaked shirt, his face on the floor, I knew within the mask, within the drowned Mona Lisa, the artist was begging for peace. I'm just going to start off, Trace, by saying I'm so sorry. <laughs>
1: It's funny, we talked about this before, but uh, how we always say, like you know content warnings, people can skip our stories. I'm like, you and I are the only two, and our editor, Casey, <laughs> who cannot skip the
0: stories. yeah, yeah,
1: but that was that was beautifully done, so beautifully, beautifully written, horrifying, um uh I guess I'll say it this way, um horrible parentheses, affectionate. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I hate it. I love you. <laughs> I hate it, but that means you did the a good job. I wrote and scrapped so many pieces for this episode. Really? Wrote, fully wrote and scrapped. Um, one, I landed on this one because it's Halloween. It's October. I want mm-hmm. us to have horror, and it is – it is a horror, this story, in a lot of ways. And because we're talking so much about this woman who was distilled down into only her face, and then I got down this path mm-hmm. of getting to actually learn about people who make death masks and have been from that time and still do uh, make castings of l'inconnu. Mm-hmm. I just... I wanted a man who wanted no face... <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you got it and you did it and it was horrible uh in a very spooky way.
0: I had another story that I didn't fully write out. Uh I scrapped it earlier that was a dinner party and all these rich Victorians would go wearing death masks of famous people. Ooh. And that was the party and the woman who was the drowned woman at the party Stepped away to go use the bathroom. And the man who in my story had the death mask of the Ripper, even though we don't know who Jack the Ripper was, it's my story. Right. Um, (laughs) He followed her out. And he drowned her in the bathroom and took off the mask to kind of like see what he'd done. Mm -hmm. And then he took off his mask and kind of in the last moments of her life, she – commented on how the mask he was wearing and the face underneath were exactly the same.
1: Oh. Okay. You might have to write that someday because that sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So masks, masks, man. We could talk for hours about masks and their function in story, their function in reality, the way people behave with a mask versus without. I mean, it's really interesting.
0: Yeah. And so much of this story is an obsession with beautiful victims. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's talked a lot about in the true crime community, but everyone loves a pretty dead girl. Mm -hmm. Specifically, a pretty dead white girl. Bonus points if she's blonde. And young. Young, blonde, pretty white women are the quote-unquote
1: most dead
0: Yes, exactly. And that'll end up on the news. And then so many victims, especially people of color, no one will ever hear about. And Lin is this idealized victim because Mm -hmm. she suffered, but maybe didn't suffer. Maybe it was okay. Well, we don't see the suffering.
1: We don't see the evidence of it. So it's not grotesque to us. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah. And Ophelia of the Sun is a great name for her because people who love the art of the drowned ophelia would probably love this story it's me i'm people it's me i'm people (laughs) so talking about masks i actually titled this section mask of the muse Ooh, because i think i'm funny at three in the morning (laughs) for the savage god a study of suicide al alvarez writes during the 1920s and early 30s, all over the continent, nearly every student of sensibility had a plaster cast of her death mask. So we are in, we are forward in time now. Yeah. Apparently, it was a 1926 catalog of death masks that gave her the immortal name, Lincoln de la Seine.
1: Could you just order a death mask from a catalog?
0: interesting interesting it's a
1: a catalog of death masks
0: i had read this like a catalog like cataloging not a catalog to buy but i genuinely do not know the answer in this case i presume you could order her you can order her online now
1: i mean that it's you know during the 20s and 30s every student of sensibility had a plaster cast of her death mask there had to be a way to get them Now I'm curious. Do you think she was in, like, the Sears catalog? That's dark. I don't think, yeah, I don't think Sears would get that dark. But it it sounds like there may have been a
0: catalog of death masks. trying to see if her death mask is on Amazon.
1: Okay, after a brief bit of Googling, very brief, I think your interpretation is correct, Rowan, that it's just... (laughs) Here is the information of all of our death masks, not my... Pipe dream of, here are all the death masks you can buy.
0: While Tracy was doing that, I was trying to see if you could order her death mask off Amazon. I don't think you can, actually. I'm shocked. I am genuinely shocked. Go support a small business. <laughs> mm-hmm. Museum archivist, Helene Pinet, who works at Paris's Rodin Museum, told The Guardian, quote, The name transcended the mask itself. It was the name that sparked the imagination. Though she certainly had a boom in the early 20th century, it was the presence of Lincoln's cast through Parisian bohemian society that fostered that later popularity. Like Mona Lisa, intrigue made her popular, and then popularity made her popular. Mm -hmm. So many artists have created works inspired by her face or her story. Our museum archivist, Helen Pinet said, quote, The facts were so scarce that every writer could project what they wanted onto that smooth face. Death in water was a very romantic concept. Death, water, and a woman was a tantalizing combination. Death, capital D. hmm The Guardian summarizes one of my favorite fictions about Lincoln Yu perfectly. The first novella to invent a story for the dead woman's mask was published by an English writer, Richard Le Gallien, in 1900. In The Worshipper of the Image, a young poet shuts himself away with the mask in an isolated cottage in the woods. He has heard that the man who made the mask fell so in love with the dead woman that he drowned himself in the Seine. The poet's devotion to the mask, which he calls Le Silencio, the silence, costs him his family and his daughter. In the story, after the wife drowns herself, the story goes, quote, But how beautiful. It must be wonderful to die like that. And then again, he said, She is strangely like Silencio. And then he walked up into the wood in a great serenity of mind. He had lost wonder but she lived again in his songs. He had lost Beatrice, but he had her image. Did she not live forever in Silencio? But he went up into the wood whistling softly to himself, but lo, when he opened his chalet door, there was a strange light in the room. The eyes of Silencio were wide open, and from her lips hung a dark moth with the face of death between its wings."
1: Oh, that's incredible. That is so Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, that's so good.
0: It's the exact cover image of Silence mm-hmm. of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. The idea being that when she opened her mouth to speak, it was just a moth. Ah. Oh. Oh. Meanwhile, German poet Rilke first saw this death mask while he was acting as a private secretary for Auguste Rodin. I didn't even know that was a thing. No, I didn't either. <laughs> Rilke wrote, quote, The face of the young woman, which was cast in the morgue because it was beautiful, because it smiled, smiled so deceptively as though it knew. One of my absolute favorite pieces that I cannot find in its entirety, much to my great chagrin, across the entire expanse of the internet, was written by poet Jules Superville. Sorry, Jules, if that's not how you say that name. (laughs) Then you should
1: come out of the woodwork and and tell us and then also give us the whole poem.
0: Yeah, come out, you coward. (sighs) Give me your poem. (laughs) In his piece, L'Inconnu de la Seine, he writes from the point of view of a 19-year-old drowned woman. He writes, Mm -hmm. quote, She traveled, not knowing that on her face shone a trembling smile far more unremitting than the smile of the living, which is always at the mercy of whatever may come. But, 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 here's the kicker. In this poem, she doesn't want to follow the rules that dictate that to live, she must stay at the bottom of the water. She wants to, quote, finally die for good. So she swims to the surface and suffocates. Oh,
1: It kind of sounds like the implication is that she's not a human.
0: I don't know. I can't find the poem in its entirety. (laughs) But also there's that idea of, well, maybe if she's under the water, she hasn't drowned yet. Right. And it's only until you come back up that you Mm -hmm. realize you've drowned. Okay. Now... This is self-indulgent for Rowan. Love it. As is this entire two-part series, let's be honest. In his 1934 poem, L'Inconnu de la Seine, yes, they all titled their poems the same thing. Vladimir Nabokov writes, and here I have an entire poem for you. Okay. Ooh, I'm excited. Urging on this life's denouement, loving nothing upon this earth, I keep staring at the white mask of your lifeless face. Strings vibrating and endlessly dying, with the voice of your beauty call, Amidst pale crowds of drowned young maidens, you're the palest and sweetest of all. In your music, at least linger with me, your lot was cherry of bliss, O reply with posthumous half-smile of your charmed gypsum lips. Immobile and convex, the eyelids, thickly matted lashes, reply, Can this be forever? Forever? Ah, the way they could glance those eyes. Touching frail young shoulders, the black cross of a woolen shawl, the street lights, the wind, the night clouds, the harsh river dappled with dark. Who was he, I beseech you, tell me, your mysterious seducer? Was he some neighbor's curly-locked nephew of the loud tie and gold-cap tooth, or a client of star-dusted heavens, friend of bottle, billiards and dice, the same sort of accursed man of pleasure and bankrupt dreamer as I? And right now, his whole body heaving, he like me, on the edge of his bed, in a black world long empty, sits staring. At a white mask. Nabokov really said screw you to the rhyme scheme and the meter. Yes.
1: (laughs) Was it originally written in English?
0: You know, he was a Russian man. This is the most popular translation, I guess. Right. I do not know. I'm really here for the second to last uh, verse. Or a client of stardusted heavens, friend of bottle, billiards, and dice, the same sort of accursed man of pleasure and bankrupt dreamer as I. Yeah. God, I love poetry. I them love them. <laughs> poetry. It's so good. Now, I quite like this poem, I will say, because A, I love Nabokov's prose, and it it gives me a chuckle that he just said nope to all the rules like right. he did. <laughs> B, it is interesting that the author of Lolita, one of the most famous, I would say, horror books told from the perspective of a main character who is a pedophile. Oh, yeah. Real quick,
1: just to touch on Lolita, it is meant to be horrifying and uncomfortable. I would describe it as a psychological horror. Mm -hmm. That is what Lolita is. And the people who read it and don't get that out of
0: it concern me. They concern me, too. And I think... First of all, Lolita is beautifully written, Nabokov writes very poetically, and that is the ultimate trick of the book, mm-hmm. to have it, the sentences be so beautiful and have the main character whose brain you are forced to occupy be so, so foul. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> it's interesting that he wrote Lolita, meanwhile, Lincoln Yu could not have been more than 19, and people ignore that all the time. Right. I also, and this is another for Rowan moment, I found portions of a 1992 essay by D. Barton Johnson called L'Inconnu de la Seine and Nabokov's Niads.
1: It's like a SEO tailored for you to click
0: on. <laughs> Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I did click it. And to quote part of it, only part Mm -hmm. for you, my friends, quote, the figure of the drowned woman occurs throughout Nabokov's work. Beginning as the stock Russian folklore figure, the Rusalka, the image evolves into Lincoln and finally into Shakespeare's Ophelia. The introduction of these three images very approximately coincides with the three stages of Nabokov's creative life. The Rasulka with the Russian period, the L'Inconnu with the continental stage, and Ophelia with the Anglo-American. A through line from Rasulka to L'Inconnu does so mm-hmm. much for me.
1: Well, ending there in Ophelia, which also I know you love Hamlet, so <laughs> really it's just perfectly tailored for you.
0: I, I'm i beginning to realize that there is somewhat of a theme that I have revealed to, I suppose, myself and the listeners. Drowning and, like, watery women just... I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, I was chatting with my mother the other day and she said, I'm just so fascinated with drowning in reference to l'inconnu. Mm-hmm. So I come by it honestly, but Absolutely. how... How interesting to have it, – it, that essay did what we always do, which is just connect so many stories, these themes that people constantly reach for. Mm-hmm. Man Ray, Louis Aragon, Picasso, Giacometti – Playwrights, filmmakers, so many artists mused over this death mask over the years. I imagine there may have been some women in there, but this did not occur at a time when women were quite as revered for their artistic works in bohemian society. Mm -hmm. Maybe there never were women who cared at all until later. I can reasonably say my mom painted a piece with her face. I've now written about her. That's two. We've got two people. I read a lot of really bad modern poetry about her. Really? So much so that I, I can guarantee at least one of them must have been written by a woman. <laughs> okay. All right. So three. So Tracy, I have a picture for you. This was Ooh. taken at an evening drawing class in Boston in 1892. So this is a old black
1: and white photo. And it is a woman sitting in front of a cast of L'Enconnu on the wall with a, light, a strong light source directly down on the top of her. And then you can see the drawing pad. The woman is drawing a very, what looks very good, uh, recreation of the mask. But it's the, we see the back of this woman in this art studio drawing the exact same death mask we've seen over and over and over now.
0: I love this photo because A, it's a woman engaging in all of mm-hmm. this, and she it's in an 1892 and her dress is just so quintessentially 1892. This looks like a photo from the period in mm-hmm. in
1: every detail. I think the thing that's confusing me about this image is that it looks like there's electric lights illuminating both her drawing pad and the actual mask.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. There are a couple of photos from Boston Public Schools evening drawing classes in the Digital Commonwealth, digitalcommonwealth.org mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen, um <laughs> that are attributed to the 1890s and there are lights. <laughs> yeah,
1: I I just don't know when Lights became electric. Like, like that part of this looks so modern, and then the rest looks so from the eighteen nineties. It's it's a it's a really cool image.
0: The photograph also looks like they pumped haze into the room to get that like thick lighting. But I wonder if ever was just smoking. Oh yeah, <laughs> it wasn't just artists who were inspired by the unknown woman of the Sen. Again, to quote the Savage God: A Study of Suicide by Al Alvarez. Quote. I am told that a whole generation of German girls modeled their looks on her. To add in note, I owe this information to Hans Hess of the University of Sussex. He suggests that the Inconnu became the erotic ideal of the period, as Bardot was for the 1950s. He thinks that German actresses like Elisabeth Bergner modeled themselves on her. She was finally displaced as a paradigm by Greta Garbo. I fully believe, fully believe that. I could see that completely.
1: With how popular her image was just for artists and everyone, of course it would expand and people would wanna emulate that.
0: All right, now we're gonna really talk about why you've kissed her. I hope everybody's been thinking this this whole time and going like, I've never been in a house that has her face hung on the wall. I hope that that's the vein everyone's taking or they did a nice little Google search. Allow me to introduce you to the team who made that reality possible. The year is 1960. Asmund Lierdahl was a Norwegian toy maker who recently rescued his son from drowning. But this is just a coincidence. Actually, he's been contracted by a group of anesthesiologists and Austrian doctor Peter Safar, the man who just developed the basics of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR. If Dr. Safar wants his technique to make it to the masses, he needs help. laridol knows that a dummy is the best way for people to practice this new, life-saving technique. He wanted a female doll believing, I think correctly, that men wouldn't want to practice mouth-to-mouth on a male dummy. Perhaps the reason he was chosen for this project was because Lyrdal had famously created the Anne doll out of the malleable substance that only one decade before entered mass production. Plastic. Hmm. In Norway, this Anne doll was once, quote, toy of the year with sleeping eyes and natural hair. Then, he saw the death mask of Lien in the home of a relative, She looked so serene and unintimidating, so he adapted her death mask to have an open mouth and nostrils, and thus, Recessa Ann, or CPR Annie, was born. (sighs) So, if you've ever been taught how to do CPR, the chances are incredibly likely that you have kissed our unknown woman. They took this hundreds of years old death mask
1: and used it to make cpr dummies that they still make today that they still make today yes (laughs) i did not know where this was going (laughs) i'm genuinely so floored that again it feels like the kind of thing you would have someone sculpt so it's like oh it's no one's actual face we're gonna sculpt it instead they're like nah this mystery girl.
0: But here's the thing. Her. It is no one's actual face. No one knows who she is. Yeah, it's... I don't know why that one got me, but this got me. Yeah. This this, this got me good. Uh, the company still exists. The Lierdahl Company, who makes Recessa Annie today... On their website, it says, quote, inspired by the young woman of the Sen, CPR Annie has become the symbol of life for millions of people around the world who have received training in modern techniques of resuscitation and for those whose lives have been saved from unnecessary death. They estimate that CPR has saved 2 million lives as of 2018.
1: I mean, absolutely. Everyone should know how to do CPR, and if you're ever in an emergency situation, the best possible thing you can do is chest compressions. It doesn't matter if you do them badly, just keep doing them. It is genuinely the difference between life and death in most uh, emergency scenarios. I didn't know that. Mhm. Just chest compressions to the tune of staying Alive. Uh uh uh
0: uh, uh. Stayin, uh stayin' alive. Stayin alive. <laughs> so, it is absolute poetry that this girl who drowned and then became famous for being beautiful and drowned is now the face of the tool that is taught so many people how to save victims of drowning. Can we talk about this picture very quickly? Yeah, this is... this picture, yeah... So this picture is Asmund Lierdahl in the water with Recessa Annie. The thing
1: about this picture, which is sepia-toned, grainy, it's a very, like, you know, 60s photo with a man in the water um, holding a woman in front of him. Her head is tilted very far back and he's
0: about to do CPR. She looks so terrifyingly real. Yeah, she's dressed in a dress and her skin looks just as real as his does in the photo. You can't see any, because it's a grainy, sepia-toned
1: photo, like, she looks just as real as him.
0: Yeah. It's terrifying. I love this photo. There are uh, photos of this moment from a couple different angles, and this is the one. Mm. There were rumors that Anne was modeled after Dr. Safar's own deceased daughter, who slipped into a coma and died after an asthma attack. This is untrue given the timeline. Got it. But, you know, it, that's another thing. Like, it, the mystery just keeps growing. Mm-hmm. Another instance of her inspiring more art uh, the lyric, Annie, are you okay? in Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal was inspired by American CPR training.
1: Oh my God. Are you serious? Mm hmm. All these pieces coming together. It's crazy to me. It's
0: crazy and she finally has a name yeah it's true her name's Annie yeah i i love i love all of this i love mm-hmm. the detail about like i remember learning cpr i remember it which means i yeah. remember her face somehow
1: i was the one who had to go up in front of the entire class and do the cpr on the dummy yeah
0: yeah you did <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was very embarrassing in high school.
0: That's why I had the audacity to be like, "I know you've kissed her." <laughs> I mean, insane, insane. I think you know, I of course in reading about her being Recessa Annie, I've read, you know, you, you they should change her face so that it's it's not this woman's face so that it's less well-known and it, it, that is the continuation of, you know, consent and what happens to your body, mm. and I actually think it's so beautiful because CPR training saves lives, full stop. Right. It does. And this woman, you know, as the story goes, maybe she lived a long, happy life, and I love that for her, but maybe she didn't, and she had to be alone, and no one knew her, and now so many people benefit from her. And even if that weren't the case, I think... That the art is so separate. Yeah, I, uh, I will say, okay, so in the medical journal, the BMJ, writer and ethicist Julian Sheather notes what 19th century Parisians did with their morgue museum would be, quote, ethically troubling today. He writes, quote, few people would want an image of a dead loved one widely circulated without consent. Well, I probably wouldn't seek to remove the mannequins in circulation if making them now I might be tempted, out of respect, to anonymize the face. Do you think you would? I think that perfectly captures the feeling I had
1: with my shock at her face being the one used for these dummies. The idea that there wouldn't even be an attempt to anonymize it or change it up for some reason and he just hit the nail on the head. It it felt shocking.
0: yeah. The thing that does it for me, and this is for me, I actually would not necessarily presume that others feel this way, but Mm -hmm. time and circumstance already protects this girl in a way that humans never can. Mm. No matter what we do with her death mask, it has... Nothing to do with her. It, it The girl who was alive. And that's actually right. why I, in my story, wanted to include in the first episode that this boy like thinks about her being loved in life. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that this wild story of a death mask that has absolutely run away from itself mm-hmm. in the way the Mona Lisa has – Mona Lisa, very little to do with our gal, Hot Lisa. Yeah. I think that it is so separate from her that no amount of imagining or poetry writing or CPR training can take away from the love or the tragedy or the daily nuance of her life. We can't even attach her name to it. Right, right. I have very mixed though
1: not terribly strong in either direction feelings about this on the Mm -hmm. one hand i completely agree with everything you're saying and i understand the fact that the art that we're talking about now has nothing to do with the young woman whose name we don't even know we don't know her life we don't know her story we're not we're not intentionally not sharing that but we don't we simply don't have it on the other hand how do we claim to know what is and isn't okay to do with her image and her Her likeness, which reflects the fact that she was a very real, vibrant, living person. So I could see arguments being made for either side, the idea that it feels ethically wrong in a way that I can't pin down, but also makes a certain amount of sense emotionally in a way that i can't pin down Mm. i have i have very conflicting feelings about it but i wouldn't say that i feel very strongly that one is right or one is wrong i think this is a situation that lives almost
0: entirely in the gray yeah i would say that that's true and i love that you have mixed feelings about it because like black and white is for twitter and frankly shouldn't be and most Mm -hmm. things are gray Mm -hmm. this story has dagger of nuance all in it all over it and you know, this uh, This story actually made me think of, like, this, this – how do I feel about this ethically? One, mm-hmm. I'm not precious about dead bodies. I am – I respect dead bodies, and I'm very reverent about, like, bones and things. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm not precious about them in quite the same way. I hope my body could be of use one day, maybe, when it is no longer of use to me.
1: Yeah. You, uh, one, you and I have talked about this before, both on the podcast and off, of – how we both feel we'd like our bodies to be used for something good. And and two, for all of our listeners who, if they do have a preference for how they want their body to be treated when they pass away, put that in your will, Mm -hmm. write it down, make
0: sure people know. It's also hideously expensive to die. And I think that is more unjust than anything that has occurred in this story. But this story did make me think of the fact that this year, Elizabeth Johnson Jr., who was sentenced to death in 1693 in the Salem witch trials was pardoned. Um, She was never executed, but unlike other witches, she was never pardoned mm-hmm. from her wrongful accusation. And it took 329 years and an eighth grade civics class. Wow. <laughs> from North Andover, actually, to get mm-hmm. that all done. And I love that. And there is something about righting a wrong for someone who's dead, mm-hmm. doing good, because it does good for the living. Yes. She is a woman with a name. She is a woman who is talked about. Her being pardoned has very clear effects for people who are still alive. hmm And that story is one that I was very excited about and resonates with me a lot. And contrasting that and how I feel about this Victorian idea of the good and the bad death, and I can't believe I'm doing this like a middle school essay, but I think I did figure out why I associate this story of the unknown woman of the Sen with Ray Bradbury.
1: Ooh, okay, so you opened with Ray Bradbury and you're closing with Ray Bradbury.
0: Yeah, I know. It's so corny. I love it. It's
1: beautiful. It's
0: beautiful. It's full circle. It's sandwiched. Th- it's It's just in the first episode I said, I was like, I don't know why I'm actually doing this. And right. I figured it out. Um, okay. Quote, death doesn't exist. It never did. It never will. But we've drawn so many pictures of it, so many years trying to pin it down, comprehend it, We've got to thinking of it as an entity, strangely alive and greedy. All it is, however, is a stopped watch, a loss, an end, a darkness, nothing. Mm. And that is also from Something Wicked This Way Comes. And I think that's why when I think about her, she is on the other side of the stopped watch. And everything that we do in life is just around with with likenesses yeah oh i now
1: i want to sit and just like in a dark room and think about that like that's so interesting the idea that she is permanently on the other side of the stopped watch in a way that is beautiful yeah in a way that 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 is she's not decaying she's not rotting she's remaining beautiful in a way that reflects the beauty of life but is also a, a an entrance into the beauty of death.
0: I feel like the death mask is kind of just an image of the stopped watch. Mm-hmm. Because death is all we ever say about it. Death is what we do about it. Death is the rituals. It is the no longer mm-hmm. here in life. Death is not the gone. That is that is just what we don't know. Right. Everything that comes of death that is hard or funny. Is all about life. Right. Death is for the living. Yeah. And I thought long and hard because I knew I'd be writing about mm-hmm. her and what it means to be an artist who uses her for inspiration. Like, does this girl need my protection? Right. And I don't think sh- she does because the unknown woman of the Seine was created from death. And the girl who died mm-hmm. is safe from all of it. And that is probably why I'm obsessed with this story. <laughs> <laughs> you did such a
1: good job with this two-parter on this story. Oh, it's so cool cuz I didn't know very much about this. I mean, I knew some of the high levels just knowing you for as long as I have, but the details and the the
0: big reveal that she's the face of CPR dolls like <sighs> yeah, your CO2 has been in her mouth. <laughs> See, death can be funny, guys
1: <laughs> It can be And, and it, we, sh- we should treat it that way more and, and
0: try to be less afraid of it Oh, it's very funny Oh, it's so funny I, <laughs> It is like it, the, the, All of it, anyway I have a lot of members of my family in the medical profession That'll do it And there's just so many practicalities that are like You know, don't laugh when it's gonna hurt someone But God, if it's you and you get to decide to laugh Go crazy Oh,
1: yeah Absolutely.
0: Um speaking of laugh. Yeah? Do you want to tell me something good? <laughs> eh? My something good is
1: that on Saturday this weekend a bunch of friends and I revived our themed dinner parties. Uh, and yes. We had a Studio Ghibli themed dinner party as well as a housewarming for two of our friends in their beautiful townhouse that they're renting. And there was just a part of the night where a bunch of friends and I were standing in a circle having just eaten the most amazing food. And we were talking about the ways that people dream, whether they dream really vividly or just in images, or if they dream in color or black and white, if they can remember their dreams. And I just had this moment realizing that I have, I don't know, I've just created this lovely life for myself with amazing people. Like I can just stand at a dinner party and talk about the philosophical nuances of dreams and then we go over to the tv and play like funny tiktok videos Mm -hmm. like it was just such a lovely night and so just realizing that you have amazing people in your life that really understand who you are as a person is just the most fulfilling thing so
0: that's my something good i was watching actually a tiktok recently about someone talking about how things that are sacred don't have to be solemn Mm. And that – the idea of, like, going from, like, talking about dreams and having that be such a valuable moment among your friends and then still going and doing a silly thing and how that is – like, there's something sacred about that, but it Mm -hmm. is not solemn. No.
1: No. It was really, really rejuvenating in a way that I spent the whole next day just smiling. And I haven't felt that kind of just, like, lingering joy in a long time. Mm. So,
0: okay. It's your turn. Tell me something good. My something good, oh, I cried. Leah from Greenleaf Geek mm-hmm. heard that I was having a rough go of it, Um, as everyone knows. <laughs> yes. And she sent a care package to Kaylee's <sighs> house when I didn't have an address. And I just got to go over to Kaylee's and open it up last night and it ended up being just so perfect that it was delayed and I just felt so loved there are so many things in this box that are just so clearly Leah like thinking about me and being enthusiastic about like this uh, okay it had Earl Gay tea from Friday Afternoon Teas who we love on this podcast um it's Mm -hmm. rainbow it's glittery I love this tea Oh, my God. She included an Oracle deck I've never seen before called That Feeling When, and it's by this artist, Lisa Tula Penrose, I hope I said that right. And it's stunning. She – Oh, my God.
1: <sighs> what you guys can't see is it's, it's pale blue and purple with – really beautiful text on it
0: it's it's so beautiful and this huge box of d6s which made me laugh because i'm playing so many ttrpgs right now that are all (laughs) d6 systems um and they're bringing me so much joy and right these black rainbow sparkle dice from her and then there are two books in there and i can't believe this even exists in the world it's the golem and the Ginny by (gasps) helen wecker I hope I said that right. I wish we had known about that when we did our episode on- I didn't- oh, my We my just God, did that combination and,
1: <laughs> and- it and for, for Leah, too. That episode was for Leah. Oh, my God. I, I need everyone to understand that Leah is not like someone that we've known for so long and is a best friend of ours. And no. came on as a sponsor. Leah came on as a sponsor because we were we reached out to her because we really, genuinely, truly, honestly love her products. And just over the you've you've heard over the course of these few years of her being our sponsor, how genuinely wonderful and amazing she is as a person and the fact that she took the time to
0: take care of you like that when she didn't have to in the slightest is yeah why we love her i want to go on record like this is not on our podcast because leah is a sponsor this is on our podcast because someone who i really care about did something really kind for me and it was like so the box is just filled with like i see you um yeah and i wept
1: (laughs) i kind of want to weep right now like that makes my heart so full and so happy leah there's a reason we say leah represents everything good about the gaming community there is a reason you've heard us say that so many times oh
0: and trace the little figurine that i showed you before we started recording the little resin snake made by leah from this care package sitting next to my mouse oh my god like, oh, my God. Uh, already integrated into my life. <laughs> I like having little things to <laughs> talk to while I'm working at my computer. Little snake. Mm-hmm. It just – anyway, it – lately, this podcast has resulted in a lot of people reaching out to us and talking to us, people we don't know very often, about things that we work very hard on and that matter a lot. Mm-hmm someone reached out and uh talked about how much the aquatofana episode meant to them and i yeah sobbed <laughs> um and it's it's mm-hmm. very thrilling i think after all of this time to see that this show is an extension of our community in the way that we wanted it to be when we were stuck at home during the pandemic and lonely.
1: Yeah. This show more than anything else has taught me that when I really like something I'm consuming, I now take the time to tell the creator, even if I think there's not a chance the creator will ever see it. Mm -hmm. Because as the creator of something now, the times that people have taken the time to reach out to us on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter, in our email, however they do it, it always sticks with me for a really long time. It's not even just that it makes my day. It's something I'll think about for a long time and want to incorporate and and want to find ways to reach other people and continue to to grow that because it
0: just <sighs> – A teacher said that they brought Tell Me Something Good into their classroom. Right. And because, that – What? That was at buck wild to us. hmm And uh, –
1: <laughs> i mean people we've heard teachers have played us in their classrooms we've heard we you know when we share really personal stories or we're really open it has always resulted in people being very empathetic and understanding um and obviously we'll get you know our share of people who are like you're too mean to men too often but i will take that every time if it means that Someone in need of help heard what we were doing and and finally got themselves the help that they needed.
0: Also, there are so many wonderful men who are members of our community. Yes, there are. Who there really, really are, are. We have such wonderful, engaging human beings that we're so lucky to know, again, because of this show. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing, I will just circle back about Leah's care package, is that over all of this strife – Mm -hmm. is that I realized that in that relationship I was not seen and Mm -hmm. what I like about myself was not liked. And I didn't notice it because I thought that that was the only option. Like I just thought that was how it was supposed to be. And now in my life lately, so many people who I really love and admire have – I don't know if they've done it on purpose, have like shown me that they see me and like me. Mm-hmm. So for Leah to not only be like, hey, you did this topic on your show, but to also be like, I know this Oracle deck's gonna be cool for you. And I know that you're yeah. gonna really enjoy playing with these dice and like writing such a thoughtful card. I see you and I I like you is the my new mission with people mm-hmm. because other people taught me how valuable that is yes
1: yes absolutely i i i've gotten to the point where i'm the insane person who will like run up to you in a target just to tell you that you have like the cutest dress on because mm. i'm like why would i keep that to myself at this point point? and then i'll like run away because i don't want you to like feel uncomfortable which then also just makes it a very weird moment for you but You still got told your dress was cute.
0: Here's the thing. The best way to compliment someone without seeming like you want something from them is to already be gone by the time the compliment sinks in. You're like, I don't want anything from you. I'm not even stopping. (laughs) This is for your edification. (laughs) That's it. And if you don't (laughs) like it, that's also okay. You don't have to do anything about it. I am gone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I think we did. I think we did a show.
1: We did it. You did such a good job, and thank you all for joining us. Please give someone a compliment today, and remember that stories
0: grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? (music) Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ashe. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. In the southern Paris suburb of Arcueil. In the southern Paris suburb of Arcueil. I'm just giving myself <laughs> options now. <laughs> Arcueil. In the southern Paris suburb of Arcueil. Arcueil. There it is. In the southern Paris. Don't sound too excited. In the southern Paris. <laughs> Sorry. I can't wait for
1: the blooper to be <laughs> this. <laughs>